Good morning, New Life Church. It's good to see you guys again. Feels like I haven't been with you guys for a while. I think I was out a couple weeks ago, and then uh, last week we had the uh, the blizzard of, of 2018. And so I missed you guys. It's good to be back with you. Uh, I am happy to see that um, all of you survived the blizzard. Um, I, I talked to somebody this morning in the, in the early service who had 17 inches uh, of snow. Did, did anybody top 17 inches just out of curiosity last weekend? Anybody beat it? Two people beat it in the, the early service. They must have had close to two feet. I was, I, we live in, on the north side. We live in Weaverville. I was massively disappointed because when I went to bed Saturday night, the last thing I heard was probably between one and two feet of snow. And I woke up the next morning, we had four inches. And uh, I almost cried. I just had like these dreams of my family, like frolicking and all this snow and building these massive snow castles. And it's like four inches of snow for us. And so uh, somebody said to me the next week, Chris, you know, the Bible says it snows and it rains on the just and the unjust. So maybe God is trying to tell you something. Yeah, I, I don't know, maybe. Uh, but in any, in any case, uh, Christmas is here. It's right around the corner. Are you guys ready for Christmas? It's, it's coming, whether we're ready or not. It's right. We're just right there. And so a uh, really quick plug, uh, Christmas Eve candlelight service is a really big deal here at New Life. And so that's going to be uh, obviously Christmas Eve right here in this room at 6 p.m. And so this really is the perfect time if you've been thinking about uh, inviting a friend, a family, a neighbor, a coworker, your barista at Starbucks, whatever. Um, this is an awesome time. And we talk about this every year, but it's true. Uh, all the stats bared out. There are two times a year when people who typically do not come to church and even people who typically don't believe, they're not even believers, they will come to church at Easter time and at Christmas time just because it's a cultural thing, right? So people around Christmas are looking for fun places to go and sing Christmas carols and see beautiful Christmas trees like this. And so they're looking for festive activities to do as a family. And so just a reminder, perfect time to be invitational, right? To live kind of that missional life and invite people that you already kind of connected with in your life to come to that service. So again, 6 p.m. Christmas Eve, candlelight service. It's gonna be awesome. We're gonna pack this place out. It's gonna be a special night. So plan to be there and bring somebody with you. Now, you guys know uh, in our culture, kind of the entire Christmas season is pretty special, right? Because everywhere you go, it doesn't matter if you go to like a restaurant or a church or uh, the mall or wherever you go, um, there are lights and there are Christmas songs playing in the background. And there's kind of this holiday cheer spirit and most people are in a good mood. Um, but for those of us who are Christians, this time is special in that way, yes. But it's even uh, special in a, in a deeper, more meaningful way because we are celebrating what we call the Advent season, right? And churches have celebrated Advent for literally centuries. And as you may know, the word Advent comes from the Latin term Adventus, which means to come or to arrive. And so for believers, we typically set aside four weeks leading up to Christmas. We call this the Advent season to both celebrate the first coming of Christ 2,000 years ago, right? So that's the first Advent but we're not just celebrating the first advent, we're also building this anticipation 
for the second coming, for the second advent of Jesus. And so for those of us who follow Jesus, man, this season is not just a time of celebration, but it's also a super exciting time of anticipation as we look forward to his second coming. So this year we're calling our Advent series the Songs of Christmas because we're looking at the first Christmas songs ever sung, which are recorded for us in the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. Songs, as you know, are an important part of any culture. So you can, you can travel the worldwide. You can go to all these different countries and cultures, and songs are important in every culture. You'll find sacred songs wherever you go because these songs are just kind of, they're like woven into the fabric of different societies. See, songs are important because songs tell stories, don't they? I think that's, that's ultimately why we like songs is because they tell a story. That's why some of you sickos love country music, right? <laughs> so like, if we're just going to be honest, how many of you like country music? Don't be ashamed. Yeah, oh my goodness. All right, so I know we know who to pray for now in our church, and we will be praying for you. Admittedly, it's not my favorite genre of music, but I, but I, will, I will grant you this. Country music is great at telling stories, isn't it? It's great. Now, granted, most of the stories include uh, pickup trucks and bottles of beer and stuff like that, but they still, they tell stories really, really well. The best songs always tell a story, and the best Christmas songs tell the greatest story of all. So two weeks ago, uh, Brian did a great job kicking off our series with Mary's song in Luke chapter one. This week, we're going to look at Zachariah's song also in Luke chapter one. And so if you have a Bible uh, or if you have a, like a Bible app or something, go ahead and go to Luke's gospel chapter one. That's where this song is located. And so that's where we're gonna spend our time together this morning. And as you get there, let me just, let me give you a little bit of background on uh, Zachariah before we kind of look at his song. Zachariah was a priest and he was married uh, to Elizabeth. And Dr. Luke tells us in this account that they were righteous people. So these were, this was a couple that loved God. They served God together. And by the time we meet them in Luke's account, they are advanced in age, which is like the biblical way of saying they're really old, right? So Luke tells us that they were, uh, they were never in the entire course of their life's marriage, never able to uh, have children. They undoubtedly in this culture would have been uh, very heartbroken over this. Because you have to understand, in this culture, um, having children was everything. Right? 2,000 years ago in the Jewish culture, it was a sign of God's blessing on your life. In many ways, it determined your social kind of standing in that culture, in that society. And so to not have children 2,000 years ago in the Jewish culture would have been viewed by many, if not most people, as really shameful like, like people would have been wondering, like, what sin do they have in their life? It must be terrible that God won't bless them with kids. They must be really bad sinners, right? And not only that, you would have been kind of like a social uh, outcast, a social refugee where, like, nobody really wanted to take you in or hang out. This was Zachariah and Elizabeth's life. This was their existence. And so year after year, prayer after prayer, decade after decade of just begging God, this righteous couple begging, like, God, please just give us a kid. Just bless us with a, a kid. And year after year, prayer after prayer, decade after decade, nothing but silence. And it, it must have seemed like to them that like God had forgotten about them. It must have felt like God had abandoned them. And to make matters worse, 
This was also a really dark time in history, right? You had the Roman occupation of Israel, and so you had things like poverty, uh, injustice, evil, like all that stuff was absolutely rampant in this culture. And to top it all off, they had now had 400 years of silence from God. See, for all of, all of history up to this point, God spoke to his people through prophets. And the prophets had promised the people that a Messiah was going to come, that this, this redeemer, this hope giver was going to come and save his people. And now four centuries have passed and nothing from God. So we're talking like generations of people, like little boys, little girls, they, they're born, they grow up in this culture, they're believing in this promise, it's coming, it's coming, it's gonna happen, he's gonna save us from all this mess and all this pain and all this injustice. They live and they die and their sons and daughters will live and die, just generation after generation waiting for this promised Messiah and they got nothing but more pain and more injustice and more evil. And so here's, here's, without a doubt, the question that would have been on everybody's mind in Zechariah's day. This would be the question. Has God forgotten about us? Has God forgotten about us? Maybe the prophets were wrong. Maybe they misunderstood God, or maybe, who knows, like maybe, maybe all these promises that he was gonna send a redeemer to save us, maybe... Maybe we somehow missed it, or maybe, maybe we're too sinful. Like maybe we've gone too far. Maybe as a people, we've committed, committed too many sins, so maybe God has just abandoned us and he's moved on to a, another people. Maybe we've sinned too much. These people would have been absolutely exhausted and weary. I just wonder, like, how, as, how many of us in this Christmas, how many of us have been there? And we've asked that question, right? Even if we weren't brave enough to articulate it out loud, but we thought it in our mind, like, has God forgotten about us? Has God forgotten about me? It just seems like no matter what, you, you pray and you pray and pray, and it just seems like God either he doesn't hear or he doesn't care or he doesn't answer. And Zachariah and Elizabeth and their people, they would have been here in this moment. And I even imagine Zachariah would have been pretty disillusioned by this point. Right, the zeal that he would have had in his youth for God, the hopes and dreams that he had for his future of having a family, of serving God together as a family, all of those dreams had been dashed, crushed. I think I just picture Zachariah as just kind of like this, this old calloused man, just numb by the pain of life because of all the disappointment, all the evil, all the injustice that he had endured for an entire lifetime. And then one day, Everything began to change in his life. So one day, Luke tells us in his account that Zechariah was chosen to go into the temple in Jerusalem to light the incense, which would have been a really big deal, right? Because you had a lot of priests in Israel and they only chose just a very small number to actually go into the temple in Jerusalem. So this would have been a really kind of huge ordeal, a really special time for Zechariah. And Luke tells us that he goes into the temple and he's doing his priestly duty and all of a sudden an angel appears to him. And Luke tells us that Zechariah was troubled and fear fell upon him. As Brian pointed out two weeks ago, like, angels are not these chubby little babies in diapers that float around with a harp, right? That's kind of the image that our culture gives us of angels. But the Bible says angels are like these majestic uh, awe-inspiring creatures that cause human beings to just tremble in fear at their sight. And so just picture Zechariah, he's in the temple, he's got his little Bic lighter or match, or whatever they used 2,000 years ago to light the incense up in the temple, and all of a sudden this angel shows up. 
And Zechariah just about passes out from fear and the angel says to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, because God has heard your prayers over all these years and your wife, Elizabeth, is gonna bear a son and you shall name him John. And this little baby is gonna prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And we now know that this little baby would grow into John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Now, this, is, this would have been incredible news on so many levels for Zechariah. So you, you almost just instinctively would expect Zechariah that his response would be one of belief and excitement and thankfulness, just like, man, finally, Finally, God is, he's heard our prayers. He's actually sent this angel to tell me this good news in person. He's gonna do this miracle in my life. Like, God, thank you. You would think that would be his response to this miraculous appearance of this angel and this great news. That was not his response. Look at Zachariah's response in verse 18 of chapter one. This is Dr. Luke recording this for us. And he says, uh, and Zachariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Now, get what Zechariah is doing there. What he's, at, he's asking the angel for a sign. In other words, he, he doesn't believe. So he's saying, I, I don't believe you. You're gonna have to give me like a sign for me to actually believe this word from God. And then he says, for I'm an old man my, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, firstly, notice how smart Zechariah is. He says, I'm an old man, but he doesn't call his wife an old woman. He says... <laughs> He says, my wife is advanced in years. He's a smart dude. Young guys, pay attention if you want to stay married. Um, but nevertheless, his response is one of doubt. He doesn't believe. He doesn't believe God. He doesn't believe the angel that God sent to him. His response to this incredible news is basically, angel, are you crazy? You crazy. Like, man, we are, we are old. We're like really old we're not having any kids. Like, I, I don't know how things work where you're from, but down here on planet Earth, old people don't have babies. That was like his response. And because of his unbelief, the angel shuts his mouth, makes him mute for the next nine months. So for the next nine months, he has to sit on this. Probably, I would just imagine, feeling really, really guilty over his unbelief. And just put yourself in his shoes, right? He, he watches Elizabeth after all these decades of marriage. He watches her conceive. Her belly begins to kind of round out. You can kind of picture him putting his hand on Elizabeth's tummy and like feeling his little son kick in there. So he had just had to be asking himself, man, how could I mess this up? Gosh, man, like my wife is finally pregnant and I can't even talk to her. I can't even comfort her. Can't tell her that I love her, that I'm proud of her. I can't like help pray for her as she's like throwing up in the middle of the night with morning sickness. Like I've done this to myself and it's spilling over and affecting my family as well. Like for Zachariah, there just had to be for these nine months a really just sense of heaviness. This sense of guilt that would have just beaten him down. And Zachariah had to live with this for nine whole months. Now, maybe you've experienced something like this before. Maybe, maybe you're there right now. You're just in kind of, a, kind of a heavy place, kind of a dark place. Maybe you just feel kind of like hammered by guilt, maybe haunted by some, some failure or past sins or current sins in your life, and you know there's nobody to blame but yourself. Maybe you even struggle with self-hatred. Like, man, I, I can't believe I did that. 
I can't believe I did that again. And I'm trying to try to just keep doing the same thing. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I hurt somebody like that. Just like a heavy, guilt-laden, dark place in your life. Like I've been there. I know what that feels like. Now just imagine, like that's where Zachariah was. And after nine months of this, his son, John the Baptizer, was born. And as soon as Zechariah named his, his son John, just like the angel commanded, and by the way, he couldn't speak it. They had to bring a tablet to him so he could write it down. What's your son's, gonna, what's your, what's your son's name going to be? And he writes it down. And as soon as he obeys the angel and he writes the name John on that tablet, Luke says his tongue is loose, his mouth is open, and we're about to read the first words that came out of Zechariah's mouth after those nine months. This is known as Zachariah's song. If you grew up in high church, like a Catholic church, uh, you may know it as the Benedictus because that's the Latin word for, for blessed, which is the first word of his song. But let's read, let's read his song together. First words after nine months of just probably beating himself up. Verse 68 of chapter one. This is what Zachariah sings. He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And then he begins to, to speak or sing to his newborn son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is a reference for the Messiah, Jesus. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so the very first words out of Zechariah's mouth after these nine months of silence are these words of praise, these hope-filled words, this hope-filled song to the God who never fails. In the deepest, darkest seasons of our life, when all hope seems lost, he's saying, God is near. And so here, here's the big idea of, of the whole message this morning. I'm gonna kind of give it to you on the, on the front end, but don't, don't tune out because there's some more important stuff that comes after it. But here's, here's kind of the big idea of the whole thing. I think Zechariah's message of his song is this. God has come to us. Like when we had no way to get to him, God has come to us. We had no way to, to work our way to him because of our sin. When we were drowning in our guilt, when we were suffocating in our shame, like God came for us. He came to rescue us. So Christmas is a reminder, and this is the kind of the first truth this morning. Christmas is a reminder that hope, hope was born in a manger. Hope came to us in the most unlikely of places, in the most shocking of ways. God has Come to us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Zechariah says in verse 68, God has visited and God has redeemed his people. This word visit in the original language literally means to look upon, to inspect, to examine with the eyes. And so Zechariah is saying, listen, God didn't save us from a distance. 
God wasn't like, man, those people down there, they are so sinful. So I'm going to have to like come up with a way to save them with, from a distance so I don't get infected by their sins. Zacharias said, no, 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 no. He came face to face with us. He came eyeball to eyeball. He stepped right into our pain. He stepped right into our mess. He's with us. This is a picture of intimacy. This is a picture of nearness. He's saying he came after us. He pursued us. He is with us. And see, our God is unique in this way. Our God stands above all the gods of the world, of every religion and philosophy in the world, because every other religion or spiritual philosophy says this, you have to work your way to God. If you want to be right with God, if you want him to love you, if you want to be acceptable to him, here's a list of stuff that you can't do in your life. And here's a list of stuff that you got to do in your life. And if you don't do this list and you do this list, then God is going to love you. That's the message of every religion in the world. But the message of Christmas, the message of the gospel is that when we were so broken, that when we were so full of sin and self-righteousness that no matter what we did, we couldn't get to God, he came for us. He came looking for us. So instead of God sitting on his throne in heaven saying, listen, they've rejected me. They've rebelled against me time and time again. They've made their bed. Let them lie in it. Let's give them justice. Let's give them judgment. That's what they've That's not what God said. In our sin, in our rebellion, God said, I'm going after them. Even though it's going to cost me everything, I'm going to go after them. And that baby who was born in a manger, the Messiah, would grow into a man who would give his life to redeem his people. God has come to us. I watched a movie uh, last week. We had some time to kill uh, with the snow. Some of you guys may have, may have seen it. It's a movie called uh, Taken with Liam Neeson in it. You guys seen that? That came out, I think, in, in 2008. So spoiler alert, if that's been on your to-watch list, you waited a day too late because I'm about to give you the whole deal right now. Um, <laughs> Liam, um, he, he's this former CIA operative, and he has this teenage daughter that he's, he's really working hard to build a relationship with. And his teenage daughter, I think she's like graduating from high school or something, and she goes to Paris with um, some of, of her friends. And so he's actually, he's talking to his daughter in Paris, and they're staying in this apartment and um, this, this network of criminals actually breaks into the apartment while he's on the phone with his daughter. And you come to find out later in the movie, it's actually this, this network of uh, human uh, sex trafficking. And so basically they would kidnap young girls and put them into human sex trafficking. And so they bust into uh, this apartment that his daughter's in and he, he hears the whole thing go down. And so he's talking to his daughter, he's giving her advice, hey, go into this room, get under the bed, stay quiet, all this stuff. And he hears them bust into the room. They grab her, pull her out from under the bed. She's screaming. And so they take her out of the room. And all of a sudden, he hears somebody breathing on the other, other line. And he realizes that his daughter's abductor is on the other line listening. And he delivers one of the greatest lines or scenes in movie history. Some of you could probably quote it without looking, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you. This is what he says. He says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you and I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you I will find you 
and I will kill you. Yeah, I love that, man. Isn't that awesome? Later in the movie, you know, as you can imagine, Liam has got all these action, you know, scenes, and he's fighting and clawing his way through this criminal network in Paris, right? He's overcoming deadly challenge after deadly challenge. And finally, at the end of the movie, the climax of the movie, he rescues his daughter, Kim, on a boat. And he bursts into this room on a boat where she's being held prisoner by her captor, and he does what he said he's going to do. He kills her captor, and his daughter, her teenage, teenage daughter, is weeping. She's weeping, and she falls into her dad's arms. She says, Daddy, you came for me. You really came for me. And he looks down at his daughter's arms, who's weeping, and he says, I told you I would come for you. I told you I would come for you. I love that. Isn't that such a great picture of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us? I love movies. I love art. I love music because, listen, our culture tells us the story of humanity, that we all need rescuing, that we all need a rescuer. And what God is telling us, what Zechariah is saying about 2,000 years ago, is there, there is a rescuer. There is a hero to your story. There is one who has come. See, all of our movies, all of our music, all of our art is a shadow of the ultimate story of the God who came to rescue his people, the God who came for us, the God who does crush and kill our captors, sin, death, hell, addiction, depression, guilt, shame, whatever it is for you, he is the one that frees us from that captor. Zechariah puts it this way in verse 69. He says, God has raised up a horn of salvation to save us. This is like the picture of an animal's horn. Like think about a, a rhino. It's just this idea of raw power. And Zechariah is singing. He's saying, that's our Messiah. Our Messiah is powerful to save. He is unstoppable to redeem his people. Just like Liam Neeson in the movie Taken, he wasn't gonna be stopped just like a rhino on the African plain, like that thing's trying to get somewhere, you better get out of the way. It's not gonna be stopped. Our God is unstoppable in his pursuit of his people. Let me say that again. Our God is unstoppable in his pursuit of his people. So not only do we have hope because of the God who came to rescue us, but we now have redemption in Jesus. That's the second truth. If hope is found in a major, then redemption is found on a cross. See, Christmas is a reminder that redemption is found in Jesus because the manger led to a cross and the cross led to an empty tomb and that resurrected Jesus is our redemption. We spent the entire month of November in the book of Titus and I love the way Paul puts it in Titus chapter two. This is what Paul says. He says, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us there's that rescue mission. He gave himself for us to redeem us. There's that word redeem, to redeem us from our lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, our, our culture uses the word redeem in such a shallow way. Like the English language has so many limitations. So we use in our culture, in our language, the word redeem, so like, I'm a, I'm a football fan. Yesterday was the first day of a uh, bowl game, so I was watching a football game yesterday. And so, for example, we'll use this word, like if a quarterback throws an interception early in the game, 
and then he comes back later in the game and he throws a touchdown pass and maybe it's the winning pass, then the commentators, the announcers will say, that guy just redeemed himself. It's like, that's such a weak sauce use of the word redeem, right? Because the word redeem in the Bible carries this idea of ransom, this idea of deliverance, this idea of a life for a life. It's, it's a father tracking down his daughter and stopping at nothing to save her life. That's redemption. So let me just pause, like right in the middle of this song, just ask you a question. Like, do you need to be redeemed of something this morning? Do you need to be ransomed from something in your life? Are you haunted by something? that happened to you in the past or maybe something that you did in the past and you're just absolutely haunted by this thing that happened to you or you did at some point in your life. So when you're quiet, when you're laying in bed, you're just, man, you're just like haunted by this thing. Or are you entrapped? Are you enslaved by sin? Maybe a sin that you committed. Maybe you're still wrapped up in it. You just can't seem to get out of it. Like, do you need redemption? Do you need to be redeemed from something like this? Now, if your answer there in your mind is like, no, man, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm a good person. I can, be the, I can be the hero of my story. Like, I, I don't need anybody to rescue me. I don't need a rescue mission. I don't, I don't need any of that stuff. Listen, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to be honest enough to tell you, you need to be redeemed from your false sense of self-righteousness. That's just a different form of enslavement. Like we all need this redemption. That's why we sing songs about it in our culture. That's why we make movies like Taken about it. That's why we create art about it. It's like it's in our human DNA. It's embedded into our DNA. It's just a part of our story. We need it. What Zachariah is saying is saying, here it is. God has come to us. He has come near to us in Jesus. The redemption that we're all searching for, the redemption that we make movies and write songs about, it's here now. You find it in Christ and nowhere else, friend. And then Zechariah sings the reason that we've been given this hope and redemption in the Messiah and Jesus. Starting in verse 72, he says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So God shows us his mercy in coming to us and Zechariah connects this to the promises found in the Old Testament. For us as, as Christians, for as, us as followers of Jesus, man, it is so important for us to, to see and understand the scriptures as one unified story because it is. Like the Old Testament and the New Testament are just interwoven in this inseparable way. And the New Testament makes no sense without the backdrop of the Old Testament. The Old Testament makes no sense if we don't get the end of the story in the New Testament. And so Zechariah is saying, man, this, this promised Messiah, the Savior, this Redeemer is God's mercy to us by fulfilling the promises that he made to the prophets so long ago in the Old Testament. The promises God made to Abraham and the prophets that he would send the one that would bring hope and freedom and salvation. That promise is now here, Zechariah says, and that is God's mercy to us. Church, God always fulfills his promises. Always. 
Now, it may feel like to you in different seasons of your life, like it must have felt to Zachariah and Elizabeth. It may feel like God has forgotten you. It may feel like at times in your life in dark seasons of pain and suffering that God has abandoned you. It may feel like at times he's distant from you. But what God has said, this is what Zechariah is singing, what God has said will come to pass, will always come to pass. And that's good news because all of these beautiful promises in the scriptures, like the promise that he's for us, for his children, not against us. The promise in in Romans that he worked all things together for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. The promise that Jesus has redeemed us. The promise that he's gonna return one day, the second coming, the second advent. And when he comes, he's the second time, he's gonna right every wrong. He's gonna destroy every injustice. He's gonna wipe away every single tear. Like all of those beautiful promises in scripture, Zachariah sings, all of them will come to pass. You can stake your life on the promises of God. So why is God so good to us? And what should our response to God be in light of this radical pursuing love for us? Zechariah says in verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, friend, he has saved us. He has redeemed us in order to change us. He gives us a new life in Jesus. He transforms us from people who serve self, people who are all about self. Like we all come out of the womb that way, don't we? It's me, 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 me. It's all about me. And he changes us from self-serving, self-absorbed, nasty, selfish, sinful people to people who live and serve God, right? The, The whole trajectory and purpose of our life changes. And not only do we live to serve God who rescued us, but we get to do it, he says, Zachariah sings, without fear, Without fear. So Christmas is a reminder, and this is truth three, that Jesus gives us a better life or he at least offers us a better life. He gives us a better life. And part of that better life is this transformation into what I would call like a holy fearlessness. Because I don't know about you, but it, it seems like to me in our culture, and even sometimes if we're being real, if we're being honest in the church, it seems like so many of us are just drowning in fear, aren't we? Man, we're so scared of everything. Fear for our health. We're in fear constantly for our finances. We fear sickness. We fear for our kids. We fear for our future. We fear tragedy. We just live our lives kind of hemmed in by fear. Zachariah is saying, listen, part of being transformed by this Messiah, this coming Messiah, this Jesus, is learning to live in this new fearless way, this new fearless life. Friend, don't you want to be fearless? Don't you want the freedom just to like live your life and love and be all God created you to be without fear? But this isn't a fearless life just for the sake of being fearless. It's a fearless life Zachariah says that's marked by holiness and righteousness. See, Christmas is a reminder that Jesus gives us a better life. 
a life that's all about serving the king who saved us and redeemed us while we were rebels, while we were sinners, and he made us his sons and daughters. See, Christmas is a reminder that this life, this fearless life, marked by freedom and hope and joy, it's available to you in Jesus and only in Jesus. Zechariah is going to finish his song of praise beginning in verse 76. Now, before we read it, just, just imagine Zechariah. He's this old, weathered guy at this point in his life. He's known little in his life up to this point except for darkness and disappointment and evil. And now he's holding his son. Just get that picture in your mind. He's, he's old man. He's holding this son that he thought he would never have. He's gazing into the face of this son that he thought he'd never have. And he's looking into the face of a dream that he had given up on decades ago. And he's experiencing this, this hope that he had, he had packed away and forgotten about years ago. And this is what he says as he looks into the eyes of his baby boy that he thought he'd never have in verse 76. He says, you, child, he's talking to little John, will be called the prophet of the most high, which is a reference to Jesus, the Messiah. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And isn't that what we all need? We need to be forgiven of our sins. We need to be redeemed and restored to our creator. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And that's all of us. We're born into this broken system. We're bro born into this broken world. We all sit in the shadow of darkness and death. And he says, no, no this, this Emmanuel, this Messiah is coming to shine light on the people who sit in the darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So he looks at little baby John and he says, son, you're gonna pave the way for the Messiah. You're gonna, you're gonna prepare the people to embrace the ones who are gonna redeem and be restored by this Messiah. No pressure, kid. You talk about a big assignment when you're first born, right? Then he says to his son, man, you got, you got one assignment in life. And he says it in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, in one sense, this call was unique to John the Baptist, right? We're not all called to uh, go into the wilderness and to wear camel's hair and eat bugs and honey and scream to people that they need to repent and be baptized. Um, it worked for John, probably wouldn't work so well for you, but that was, that was his calling. So in one sense, that calling was specific to JB, John the Baptist. But in another sense, every follower of Jesus has the same mandate as John the baptizer, right? Aren't we to be about sharing the good news that God has come to us? That in Jesus, a light has dawned in this dark world? that those of us who sit in the shadow of darkness and death, we can now have life and freedom and peace in Jesus? That's the good news of the gospel. That's the Christmas message. So that's the last truth this morning. Christmas reminds us, believer, that we have a mission. 
See, in the middle of all the Christmas stuff, and I love the Christmas stuff or cultural stuff. In the middle of the songs and the lights and the presents and the food and all that stuff, we got to remember Jesus saved us, not just from like sin and death and hell. He actually saved us into a better life, one with purpose, one that's all about loving him and loving other people as we advance his kingdom by helping people find and follow Jesus. Like that's what we're supposed to be. That's our mission statement in new life. God has given us this mission. That's what Zachariah was saying 2,000 years ago. So believer, hear me, this Christmas season, you know a lot of people in your life. You have access to people that I will never have access to. You work with people. You're related to people, whether you wish you were or not. You have friends. You have neighbors. You have coworkers. You have baristas at the Starbucks or wherever that you visit frequently, your favorite restaurant. You have like the spider web of people that God has placed into your life. And I just want to remind you this Christmas season that all of those people, they need Jesus more than they need anything else in their lives. They need Jesus more than they need the air that they're breathing into their lungs in this very moment. They need what Zacharias sung about 2,000 years ago as he witnessed and tasted this hope for himself. They need this salvation. They need this forgiveness. They need this hope. Christian, you have what they need. As sons and daughters of the light who has dawned in a dark world, let us go out as little lights into the darkness with a message of hope, with a message that God has come to us. God has come to us. Find your life in him. Let that be the song that our lives sing. God has come to us. Find your life in him. As we get ready to close, let me invite you just to bow your heads for, for just a minute. I would just guess in a room this size with this many people, there's at least one, probably a lot more than one person that doesn't yet know this God that's come near to us. It's probably at least one doesn't know this God who came near to us to give us hope and to give us a fearless life. And if I'm talking to you in this moment, let me just encourage you, man. If you, if you haven't surrendered your life to this God of mercy, to this rescuer of your heart and your soul, this giver of freedom and peace, I just want you to know you, you can do that today. In fact, the scriptures say that today is the day of salvation. And so if the spirit is moving in your heart and your life and you're just like drawn to this God, you've never really experienced the transformation that only he can give you in your life, let me just encourage you not to leave this place until you get that settled. If you wanna know more about it, maybe you're just curious. Maybe you're not ready to jump in with both feet, but you just wanna ask some questions. That's fair. As soon as we get done in just a minute, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper and we're gonna sing. We're gonna have some people right up here in the front. So if you wanna talk, come up here. That's what we're here for, just to talk with you, pray with you. If you don't have time for that, you can fill out your connection card. There's a little box on there that says something like, I wanna learn more about following Jesus. Just check that box, put your name, fold it up, put it in the wooden boxes at the back two doors and we'll contact you this week. 
Now, for those of you who are here and you would say, yeah, man, I'm a believer. I believe this stuff. I love Jesus. I've given my life away to him. The question for you this morning is, man, who can you, who in your life can you engage this Christmas season? Like in a meaningful way, not just like, hey, Merry Christmas. Who can you engage in a significant spiritual conversation? Who can you invite? Who's in your life that you can invite to our candlelight service in just a little over a week? Right? This is the one time a year, one of two times a year, where people actually will come with you. So just think about, man, God, who, who's in my life right now that could use an invitation to something like this? Who can I talk to? Who can I take out to coffee? Believer, let's, let's leverage our culture's love for this season to live on mission with Jesus. Let me pray for us as the ushers come to the tables. And then we're gonna celebrate by taking the bread and the juice. And then we're gonna do what Zachariah did 2,000 years ago. We're gonna sing. We're gonna worship to this God, this Emmanuel who came for us. Let's pray. Father, in the chaos of this Christmas season, Ah, you are good. You are the Father who pursues us, who stops at nothing to rescue your daughters and your sons. So God, this Christmas season, would you just remind us, would you bring it to our minds that the reason we can celebrate, the reason that this is actually a good time in history, in our lives, is because we have a God who came to us, came for us, God who takes sinners and rebels like us and makes them sons and daughters. A God who takes people who are selfish and self-absorbed and fearful and absolutely transforms them into fearless people who love and serve God because of what Jesus has done for us, God. So help us to leverage this season. God, help us to live on mission with you. Help us not to waste this season. Help us to engage people in our lives. Help us to invite people to show them the beauty that's found in Jesus. God, help us not to waste this season. We ask and we pray in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. And we're going to take some time and we're going to celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper.